Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in Politics and Polemics, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Megu. I also host my own podcasts, Independent Thought and Freedom, and also a story club, Global Politics and Global Cultures. Today, my guest is Justin Gifford, author of the book Revolution or Death, The Life of Eldridge Cleaver, published by Lawrence Hill Books in October 2020, now out in hardcover, audiobook, and on Kindle. Welcome, Justin. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, it's it's a pleasure. Uh, I'm I'm really excited to talk to you about this book. Actually, it, it it's fitting in with so many things that are going on right now. I'm actually doing a series for the NBN on Malcolm X and Black nationalism, and also on Third World nationalism. And Eldridge Cleaver uh, absolutely overlaps with that. Yeah. Where where are you? Uh, co- uh, well, I'm calling you from Trinidad and Tobago in the Caribbean. Uh, and where are you right now? Uh, I'm currently at my home in Reno, Nevada. Okay, great, great. Well, we like to start off our interviews with uh, asking you to please let our audience know a little bit of a, you know background about yourself, and particularly in relation to the subject of this book. So can you please do so? Sure, of course. Um, well, I first encountered Eldridge Cleaver back when I was a college freshman uh, over 25 years ago now. And um, actually, he was really the inspiration along with some other writers like Jack Kerouac and Malcolm X, who inspired me to drop out of college um, and try to write my own kind of radical revolutionary work. Uh, So I spent some time living in San Francisco and reading a lot of black power authors, including Eldridge Cleaver. And then... What years um, was that? That was like in 1995, something like yeah, that? Yeah, it was 1994, 1995. Okay. Um, I was a freshman at Santa Clara College on a uh, cross-country running scholarship and uh, broke my leg the first week of practice. And so uh, I was on the bus with the team, but I uh, wasn't running. So I was spending a lot of my time reading. This was like the first time I'd really spent time reading. Um, I came from a working class background. And so Mm -hmm. I didn't really spend too much time reading in in grade school and high school. But when I got to college, uh, I was really um, moved by uh, a lot of the black power writers of the 1960s. And so I started reading these guys and um, became inspired, like I said, to kind of uh, drop out of college and try to write my own um, radical uh, manifesto, as it were. Uh, That, of course, uh, didn't work out exactly as I'd planned. After about a year of reading and writing on my own, I decided I needed more training. So I went back to school, um, eventually pursued my PhD, and now I'm an English professor at the University of Nevada in Reno. Oh, wow. Okay, that's interesting. And I mean, I I see in in your, uh, you know, this is not your first book you've written. You've written on like Iceberg Slim and, uh, and, um, uh, other sort of, uh, you know, kind of street um, black literature, correct? Yeah, that's correct. I, uh, you know, I've always been interested in these um, these American literary figures that are hard to recuperate in the culture, you know, for one reason or another. Um, you know, people have various kind of moral or ethical 
um, objections to people like Iceberg Slim, who was a former pimp and became a writer, and then now Eldridge Cleaver, um, who is a proponent of black power um, and and really revolution um, in the United States. So um, I've always been interested in these in these figures that are kind of out there on the margins um, of literary and cultural respectability. Um, as you say, I started my work on Iceberg Slim, um, wrote the first biography on him in conjunction with his as a state. Um, and now I have this new book on Eldridge Cleaver that just came out, as you said, in October 2020. Yeah. Did you grow up in Nevada or or California? Or No, I actually, uh, I grew up in Seattle uh, okay. during during the grunge era. Right. And, um, you know, that was a huge influence on, on me uh, in in my teenage years, I was really into both kind of grunge music and hip hop music. I saw a lot of intersections between those two things. So, uh, you know, I started off in those kind of musical genres and then moved my way into uh, black literature. Yeah, yeah, because I mean, the uh, I mean, I'm not uh, too far off uh, from you in terms of uh, age, uh, a little just slightly older, but yeah, in the in the '90s, definitely. Um, you know, part of the, the cultural milieu at the time. I mean, Public Enemy would have passed its its peak in the late 80s, but still kind of the echoes would have been there. NWA and, uh, well, you had Ice-T, Cop Killer, and so the Iceberg Slim connection there. And then you had Quentin Tarantino. I mean, because the other thing I, I think I, I'd like to just explore briefly is, you know, the, uh, the sensitivities of... Uh, basically a kind of white liberal, I guess, speaking about black issues. I mean, there's a lot of, uh, you know, and, and especially, you know, I mean, you're looking at Eldridge Cleaver. I mean, so they had a Malcolm X, et cetera. They had a very developed critique about, uh, you know, about that. And so you've obviously would have had to, you know, negotiate uh, all of that. And I think one other thing I'll throw in the mix for your comment there is, you know, at that time, Quentin Tarantino was coming up and then he had his whole, kind of uh, interesting take on on the whole thing. And then, he, you know, I, I'm so sad he didn't continue on the Jackie Brown uh, route that he should have gone after Pulp Fiction, in, in mm -hmm. my view. But, mm -hmm. um, uh, yeah, I, so I, I think, uh, you know, do, do you have anything you want to share about that? Because cause definitely uh, me, as someone who is not of African-American descent, but I'm very interested uh, in in Afro-American history, write about these things and, and talk about them. And I'm involved in politics. I know there's a lot of sensitivities. Uh, you, you have to um, negotiate, you know, being honest and critical, but not pandering. You have to be sensitive. You know, don't pretend to be black. You know, you admire, but, you know, but, but also be, you know, critical. There's a lot of things. I, I, do you have anything you want to share with that in that regard? Sure, absolutely. I mean, it's a question that, of course, comes up. Um, you know, anytime that I present my work to either academics or the public is this question of, you know, what do you do about the fact that I'm a white guy talking about black literature? And um, particularly in this moment, you know, in the Black Lives Matter, Me Too era, um, this has become a particularly sensitive conversation. And so, I mean, one thing that I would say is um, I don't I don't identify in any way with white liberals. I think that mm -hmm. white, white liberalism is... Um, in some ways, the source of many of our problems. Um, and I'm certainly not on the conservative side of things. I mean, I would actually um, characterize myself as a far left Marxist. And, 
it's precisely because of my class politics around this that I'm able to create some alliances and connections with um, black people who are also working on this stuff. So, you know, just as an example, um, I've been able to work um, very um, intimately with the family, with the Cleaver family on this book, Kathleen Cleaver, who is, you know, herself a radical intellectual during the 1960s and 1970s, um, gave me full access to her archive um, as I was working on this book. And, you know, at the very beginning of that, um, project, we had to have a very honest conversation about, you know, what does it mean that um, I'm representing um, Eldridge Cleaver's life and his memory and his works. Um, and, you know, that's a conversation that needs to, for me, revolve around, you know, what are what are the like potential alliances that can be built between black and white um, scholars and activists and for me, it's it's really comes down to class politics and the the way that the both races can be unified along those lines. I mean, Cleaver himself, um, even though he's known as a black nationalist, the truth of the matter is, is that he was one of the largest proponents of white um, alliances with like white radicals during the 60s. He was constantly trying to bring the Black Panthers together with the peace and freedom movement, which was an anti-war um, group that emerged in the late sixties. Um, so I, while I'm try to be very careful about politics of representation, um, I do also believe strongly that, um, there is common ground here that can be, can be forged. All right. And, uh, let me ask you about your title. Um, why did you choose the title revolution or death? Because I'll tell you when I first saw it you know it sounded kind of like you know kind of hagiography kind of you know um you know almost like a, a pamphleteering kind of thing you know where you know celebrating the life and especially in this time of you know black lives matter and and uh, and you know there's a lot of kind of uncritical propaganda um sometimes as well because it's kind of part of the you know, political mobilization, and, and I understand all, all that stuff. And but you know, you, your book is not that at all. Uh, it, it, you know, you are you're not. Uh, you, you look at you, you know the, the complexities, the contradictions, the the ugly parts, and it, so it's not just a mere celebration at, at all. So you know, can you just explain you know the thinking behind uh, your title, like what uh, if if there's any if there's anything interesting there. Sure, absolutely. I mean, one of the things that's really interesting about Cleaver for me is that um, from the beginning of his life all the way to the end of his life, even though he shifted in his political views in a variety of ways, he was still a deeply utopian thinker in the way that he approached things. And um, for him, whether he was fighting on the side of the Black Panthers and wanted to um, overthrow the United States government or whether he was a religious leader in the 80s and he was um, talking about not material transformations, but spiritual revolutions, um, Cleaver was deeply dissatisfied with um, what he saw as the really the imperfection of a racialized society. And so, you know, in, in a variety of ways, um, and one can discuss the merits of, of his approaches, um, but in a variety of ways, he was deeply committed to transforming society. And so, um, and, and uncompromising in that, you know, and while he was in the Panthers, I mean, one of the, one of the powerful things about, about Cleaver that I found out in my research is that he was the 
kind of militant underground wing of the Panthers. There was, of course, the you know free breakfast program and the community organizing wing of the party, which was run by Huey Newton. But um, but Cleaver was deeply interested in forming an underground movement within the Panthers as a way of eventually overthrowing the United States police force and ejecting them from the black community. So his deeply held beliefs were a kind of Manichaean all or nothing uh, approach, which I think makes him both a fascinating figure um, and, of course, also very troubling in a lot of ways. Right, right. Now, in your introduction, you make a very bold claim, let me put it that way, um, that we cannot understand the story of modern America with all of its racist violence and struggles for radical egalitarianism without understanding the story of Eldridge Cleaver. Um, so you, you put him uh, you know, on, in, in a very sort of important uh, position within uh, you know, the, the historiography of America, if you want to put it that way, the understanding of, of America. Do you want to explain, um, explain that a little more? Absolutely. Uh, you know, one, one thing that I would say about Cleaver is that, well, to back up, I mean, if you look at today's struggles um, in Black Lives Matter and, you know, the protests that have been um, going on around the country, and one of the things that has been articulated very clearly is that police brutality um, is an ongoing systematic problem um, in our country with Black people being killed by police you know, all of the time on the regular. And Cleaver was one of the first people back in 1967, 1968, when he joined the Panthers to really articulate this problem. And the Panthers started off as a group that began by policing the police. In other words, um, back when California um, did not have any sort of gun laws on the books, you could openly carry a, a, a weapon as long as you weren't pointing at anyone um, just down the street. And so what the Panthers did with, with Cleaver um, somewhat leading the charge on this was that they would go out patrolling and listening to radio um, signals and would show up at the arrest of a black man or black woman. They would start stand at a respectful distance with loaded guns and law books, and they would read out to the police officers what the, the penal code was. Um, so this policing the police, this kind of... Um, this rejection of the racist police force in America, um, while it's been getting a lot of tension in the media today, um, this really starts with the Black Panthers and particularly with Cleaver. Um, so I do think that there are some, um, some historical kind of lines that, that run um, continually from Cleaver's moment to our own. Um, the other thing that I would say about Cleaver that's really, I think, powerful is that he really tried to build um, alliances with third world countries and tried to see um, or view um, Black America's various kinds of social problems as connected to larger colonial um, problems, particularly in places like Cuba and Algeria and the Congo. And um, this kind of international or global perspective is something that you are starting to see more and more of these days as well as people are making these connections between um, decolonization and um, various power structures there with um, the various kinds of like racial power structures that we have in America. So he was really um, a forward-thinking critic uh, of race relations in America, particularly in the ways that he saw them as a, a global issue. 
Yeah, yeah, definitely. Now, he was uh, obviously a very controversial figure. So what are some of the most common misunderstandings about Eldridge Cleaver that you address in the book? Sure. I mean, I think that the biggest you know, stumbling block. I mean, one of the reasons that people have not recuperated Cleaver in the way that they may have recuperated someone like Malcolm X is that Cleaver in his young life um, got it in his head after serving a prison term and after listening to and hearing about the the lynching of Emmett Till, um, he started to believe that rape was a political act. And at the age of 18 to 20, um, he very intentionally and purposefully went around um, raping white women um, and believing that it was an act of politics. Um, unfortunately, this and has then, been... Go and ahead. He, he, and, and also with that, I mean, he said he started out by practicing on black women. I mean, so... Yeah, exactly right. Really I mean, terrible, he, yeah. there's this part in the book where I talk about this, that when he got um, free of prison, um, after he had um, heard about the Emmett Till... Uh, lynching, and he had read things like Richard Wright's Native Son and decided that he was going to become um, this very intentional rapist. Um, he said when he got out of prison that he couldn't bring himself to pimp black women. Then he said it was just too cruel and brutal to do that. But then he turned right around um, and, as you say, would practice on black women, raping black women, in order to then go on and rape white women later. Um, so a deeply disturbing um, and perverted version of justice on, on his part. But what I do think is important about Cleaver is that um, he disavows this as soon as he goes back to prison um, for assault with commit, an intent to commit murder. Um, when he's about 20, 21, um, he goes back to prison and decides that this is not something that's a viable political strategy and then begins to work on other political strategies, including um, joining the Nation of Islam. And I think that many people, when they talk about Cleaver, you know, they, they label him a rapist and dismiss him. And uh, I do think that, that there is something to be gained by not just throwing him into the dustbin of history, but um, thinking about his progress and his process um, of becoming a radical political leader um, it's necessary for me to tell those stories about um, his like various forms of sexual violence, as well as his abuse of his wife later. Um, but I don't want to just reduce him to that as well, because I think that there's something from his um, political history to be gained. Yeah, because I mean, uh, you know, so much of our um, understanding of him today proceeds from that, you know, that horrible truth of, you know, about his, his past, um, raping, but, uh, but, you know, at the time, uh, as well, you know, and while he was alive, there's no escaping that, you know, he was a, an extremely charismatic speaker, um, you know, brilliant. I mean, he, he, he captured, you know, the imagination and attention of, of, whites and black people and um you know he he was a very very uh, dynamic uh, person and um and you know he 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 did have a a huge impact in his life although it it always was controversial you know uh, i i suppose um get, getting into to the to the controversy a, again a little bit uh, 
Thurgood Marshall's critique of Malcolm X, I think, um, applies uh, uh, applies to the Panthers as well. And 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 although you know I am very much uh, a sort of fan, if you an admirer of Malcolm X, and and, and personally someone that you know inspired me uh, so much and and made my life you know take a, a turn. And, uh, you know, I, you know, Malcolm X is a huge, you know, well of, of inspiration, uh, for me, uh, always yet, um, I, I do have to give, you know, the, the, let's say the NAACP critics, um, you know, uh, recognition and acknowledgement for, for their critique. Like for instance, um, Carl Rowan, um, Listeners may not know who he is, but he was an American journalist. He's an author and a government official. Uh, he had syndicated columns. Uh, he was the highest-ranking African-American in the U.S. government. Right? Writing in the Washington Post in '92, right after the movie of Malcolm X premiered. I'll just read this quote because I, I think it's, it's, it's a little long, but it's very illustrative, and, and I want you to, to address it as well. So it's, he's, he says... Um, the whole Malcolm X phenomenon is a glaring, sometimes dismaying case of movie makers and others revising history and making a man who had dubious impact in life appear to be a towering social and political figure long after his death. I remember Justice Thurgood Marshall responding to a question about Malcolm X with this challenge. Tell me one thing he did to free black people or lift the level of their lives. The facts are clear that Malcolm X never worked to get blacks into a single desegregated public school or into any previously all-white law school or medical school. He never went to jail for trying to win blacks the right to vote. Imbued with legitimate anger and bitterness over what slavery had done and entrenched white bigotry was doing to black people, Malcolm X preached his brand of racism and segregation. Whites were the blue-eyed devils he saw salvation of blacks and separatism and godfathered a feeble in quotes revolution run by the likes of rap brown and stokely carmichael malcolm x didn't go to prison for civil rights activities he went for burglary his record regarding illicit drugs and pimping is not one any movie should glorify before before black kids who have been asked to cut classes to go to the theater Malcolm, in the 27 years since his assassination, has become a symbol of the diffuse rage that permeates black America. He has been made the symbol, however inaccurate and, be and uh, beautified, of black outrage against the racial policies of the Reagan and Bush administration. Malcolm X, former prisoner, has been made the symbol of black fury over a criminal justice system that puts in bondage half the young black males in America. In real life, Malcolm X generated a feeble social hurricane of, in quotes, black power, where the winds cried, burn, baby, burn. This was self-defeating madness for black America. So that kind of, I, I won't call it a, a black conservative critique, uh, but a, kind of the, the mainstream civil rights NAACP approach. I guess it's conservative in the sense of black American and the Democrats. Um, you know, I, as I said, you know, I, as an admirer of, of Malcolm X, uh, uh, I, I don't, you know, I, 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 I'm not necessarily on this side, but I do understand what they're saying. Uh, what, what's your response to this, uh, black critique of the black power movement? 
Yeah. Um, can I start off by saying I think it's horseshit? Okay, <laughs> sure. Uh, I don't know if we can say that on your program. Um, yeah, yeah, we can. Okay, great. Um, I mean, look, from one perspective, the civil rights movement is a success, right? It transforms laws and policies in order to make black Americans and white Americans, um, by law, um, equal. But, um, and this is where Malcolm X and I think Eldridge Cleaver offer something more. Um, it's also the case that it didn't transform the economic foundations at all of this country. And in fact, um, the reason that the black power movement emerges as, as a movement in the wake of Malcolm X's death is to try to address some of the things that the civil rights movement is just incapable of addressing. Um, the other thing that I would say too, is that, you know, Martin Luther King and the civil rights leaders did not necessarily appeal to all black people. And, um, and by that, what I mean is the black Panthers wanted to, to recruit what they called the brothers off the block. And what they meant by that is, you know, what Marx, what Marx would say is like the lumpen proletariat, you know, the, the criminals and the various other kinds of, um, people in the black community who, um, you know, according to like a traditional Marxist theory seem beyond, um, class consciousness and cannot be recruited for, um, the purposes of black liberation, um, drawing from inspiration from Malcolm X while in prison, um, Eldridge Cleaver sought to organize black prisoners, particularly under the nation of Islam at first. And then once Malcolm broke from the nation of Islam, um, under a kind of like a broader, black power, um, umbrella and, um, and agitated for, you know, rights for black people while in prison and then continued that organizational effort once he joined the black Panthers. So I, I think that, you know, to just address the critic, what I would say is that not all problems can be solved with marches and sit-ins. Um, and this is why Malcolm X appeals um, and I think continues to appeal to a large seg segment of the black population and white and whites as well, um, because he's offering a more radical vision of uh, this transformation of America that's not just working within its laws, um, but, but perhaps, you know, thinking more seriously about a larger transformation or even overthrow of the current system. So I, I do think that um, the critic maybe overstates the case about um, Malcolm's criminal background and, and underestimates the effect that he had on people, particularly people who are maybe more at the margins of society, like people in prison, um, people who are working class, people um, who are criminals. Like these are the people that Malcolm uh, was able to reach. And in large part, you know, this is what Eldridge Cleaver was kind of picking up on um, once he was freed from prison in 1966, the year after Malcolm was killed. Yeah, yeah, and, and I mean, yeah, and I know that he actually was working with the organization of Afro American Unity uh, as well, which was Malcolm X's organization. Yeah, so, and in, uh, so there's a very direct lineage there. And in fact, you know, when he, when when Eldridge Cleaver gets out of prison in '66, he, he doesn't know anything about the Black Panthers yet, and so what he decides he's going to do is to continue to to organize the that organization that Malcolm starts when he comes back from Mecca and make an American version um, of this organization in order to bring together um, African-Americans, basically kind of from the street level on up. And, uh, 
you know, as he's trying to create this organization as a way of furthering Malcolm's cause, that's when he meets the Panthers and decides that Huey Newton, in fact, is the the direct heir of Malcolm X. And this is why he decides to join the organization. Right, right. Now, in your, um, so so that's, uh, at, let's say, the beginning of, of his radical, uh, well, involvement in radical movements. And you note that, um, uh, you know, Cleaver, well, this is a quote from you. Cleaver was a chameleon who adapted quickly to changing political and social circumstances. So what were, I mean, you know, when you look at his life, you know, um, and things that, you know, so, so North Korea and, um, and, uh, I, I can't, I can't remember the, the leader at the time, the, the, the revolutionary leader, the equivalent of Mao, Kim Jong-il's father, uh, father, mm-hmm. but, uh, you know, Cuba, Algeria, France, you know, the peace and freedom party at Timothy Leary, the weather underground, Martin Luther King, Jr., COINTELPRO, all these huge, huge, uh, you know, things. Cleaver was like right in the center uh, and involved uh, with all of that. C- could you just kind of um, uh, go through, uh, you know, some of those things uh, for our readers? You know, all these these quickly changing political and circumstances which he found himself in and which he had to adapt to. Absolutely. Uh, great question. I mean, I'll start with, I have a couple I can, I can talk about. I mean, the first sure. that's, that's really key is that when he, he's in prison for 11 years um, for assault to commit murder. And back in those days, it was, um, you were um, sentenced without um, a specific time limit. So you would go up for parole every single year. And every single year he would go up for parole, they'd say, well, you know, we don't think that you are reformed enough. You need to do more vocational work and you need to become more of a model prisoner. And after five years of this, he decides I'm never going to get out based on um, my behavior as a model prisoner um, because the system is racist. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to try to um, gain more civil rights while in prison by joining the Nation of Islam. So he becomes a leader of the Nation of Islam and starts leading various kinds of protests in the prison, which he's able to do because, of course, the um, Constitution um, guarantees freedom of religion. So he uses religion as a kind of power base um, to, to try to get more um, civil rights for black prisoners. This leads to all sorts of um, conflict with the warden and with the prison itself. He's put in um, solitary confinement for 10 months. His, um, his cellmate, Booker X, is killed by the um, prison guards during a riot. So he's absolutely afraid of his lo- for his life. Um, and after much agitation, he gets himself transferred to Folsom Prison. And at Folsom Prison, he decides he's going to give up the Nation of Islam completely. He just um, stops practicing as a preacher. He stops going to the meetings. And instead, he starts writing to various lawyers as a way of trying to um, get them to take up his case and help him secure his freedom. Um, And at which point, he meets a woman named Beverly Axelrod, who is a lawyer, a Jewish lawyer um, from California. And he essentially seduces her over his letters. And over the course of two years, he gets her to help him um, get his book, Solonize, published. 
and get the prison to let him go. And there's like 2,500 pages of these letters um, at the Berkeley Library at the Bancroft. So he goes from being this kind of like radical religious leader to being this Casanova figure um, to get himself out of prison, um, which is just astonishing. And then another thing that happens is that, you know, he he gets into a shootout with the police in 1968, two days after Martin Luther King is assassinated. He he decides that he and a bunch of Panthers are going to try to um, create a revolution by like actually starting a firefight with the Oakland police. He escapes the police. He goes to Cuba and then to Algeria. And while he's there, he starts building an international organization um, of, of revolutionaries. And they're doing everything from building international alliances with places like Vietnam and China and North Korea but they're also um, hijacking airplanes in order to get ransom money. As soon as the Algerian government turns on him and says, you can't be doing these hijackings anymore, he escapes the country and moves to France where he decides he's going to become a fashion designer of men's pants. So, you know, depending on the circumstance, Eldridge Cleaver, like you say, is right at the center of these transformations but he's also a guy who can read the writing on the wall and, and make very quick decisions about changing his entire identity based on what is, um, what is possible and what is necessary. Now, he, here's um, one thing. Of, uh, you, you're right. The, the changing of identity, the, the chameleon aspect. Um, you do point out that um, basically he was a, a troubled uh uh, he, he he was a troubled person. Is is that a correct assessment of of the way you you see it? Absolutely. I mean, here's a guy who had this very traumatic, violent family background. His father was deeply abusive, both toward his mother and to him. And then he left the family when Cleaver was twelve or thirteen. Um, and then you know the guy spends his entire like teenage years and twenties in one form of reform school or prison or another. So I mean he is um, deeply um, psychologically scarred from a very early age and continuing on in through his up until he's basically thirty years old, which is when he he finally does get out of prison. Both in terms of reading people's you know biographies and in my own political experience as well i've i've come across this several times these brilliant brilliant people brilliant figures have amazing ideas and an incredible energy and uh, and determination and will and are able to put themselves you know right in the center of events and then, you know, like, okay, so let's say his pants, right? I mean, the pants had, you know, these cod pieces for just for, to have your penis through, right? So, I mean, so it's like this, um, you know, absolutely um, scandalous kind of, uh, you know, uh, you know, he called it virility pants, right? So it's like penis pants in a sense. And it's, it's um, you know, uh, there, there would be, you know, all these uh, sort of uh, troubling things that would uh, kind of emerge here and there. And, and I mean, just like how they say genius and madness are, you know, there's a fine line. You know, I, I think that applies uh, to, to the politics as well. And, um, you know, and for, for many, you know, many political leaders, people, you know, talk about um, uh, 
you know, that uh, sometimes people say you have to be psychopathic or, or psychotic or, or some sort of, you know, um, megalomaniac because you do talk about that, mm-hmm. um, right, in, in, in the book. And, uh, I mean, V.S. Naipaul, uh, a countryman of, of ours in Trinidad and Tobago, I, I love him very much. But he, he's had a, he was, you know, criticizing people like Eldridge Cleaver, one particular one person in particular was a, a fellow named Michael X, um, who uh, was very um, was feted by the white liberal establishment in the UK. You know, very parallel to people like Atrap Brown, um, uh, Eldridge Cleaver, and so forth in New York, like Bernstein's famous party in Manhattan. But you know, Michael X were turned uh, to Trinidad, and he ended up murdering um, some people here. Uh, you know, one was this. Um, you know, one of his his uh, facilitators was a white liberal, Gail Benson, and you know, so there, it was kind of a weird sexual relationship they had. You know, and she would like worship him and and this kind of stuff, and he killed her. It was you know, so the you know the, the and and Naipaul is very very harsh on on white liberals on on the media for you know for uh, kind of glorifying these people giving these people a, a stage when they probably uh need help you know i i i'm you know i brought up quentin tarantino with you earlier and you know his his natural born killers has nothing to do with race but it is about the way the media uh you know uh you know glorifies the, these kind of uh violent and, and violent fantasies in in eldridge cleaver's life do you, and and his megalomania that you um that that you talk about, uh, do do you see this as as being relevant? And can you expand on your sort of analysis of his um his possible you know mental uh, condition? Sure, absolutely. Um, I mean, one way to think about this is that I'm not interested in writing a biography in either lionizing someone nor dismissing them. Um, right. It that feels to me like a um, unhelpful strategy for understanding Cleaver, but also understanding you know the world that Cleaver came from. And for me, writing these biographies is about using this individual as a vehicle to understand the kind of hidden parts of our history um, right. that we don't really talk about. I mean, you know, with with Cleaver one of the things that I found in my research that was really powerful was um, I was able to track down information about his ancestors who were slaves, who were former slaves um, in Arkansas. And um, by going back through tax records and oral histories and um, genealogical records and ship surveys, I was able to reconstruct the story of Cleaver's great-great-grandfather, um, who was a slave in Arkansas and in the Black Belt um, down in the South, and then eventually, after 25 years of being a slave, escaped from slavery during the Civil War. So, you know, the reason why that's so significant for me is that this is a history that normally people um, would either ignore and, or just simply not know of. And Cleaver yeah. gives me an opportunity um, to talk about that history and to directly link his story to the larger history of slavery, of the Great Migration, of the prison industrial complex, of the various social and cultural upheavals of the 1960s, 
to me, it's not about the individual. To me, it's about the way that the individual can triangulate our history in ways, um, again, that we either ignore or we repress or that we simply just don't know about. Um, that, that for me is the important part. And I'm sure he, he probably wasn't aware of, of that part of his, his own genealogical history as well. Am, am I right? Yeah, no, what's really fascinating is that, you know, he always would tell the story, um, that his ancestors went all the way back to Jefferson Davis, you know, the president of the Confederacy. Um, yeah. and in my research, I didn't find any such documents that would suggest that. I mean, there may be documents out there that someone else will find down the line, but in my own research, I didn't find this. And so part of what I was trying to do in that opening part of the book was really demythologize Cleaver's own understanding of his past in order to tell a more, um, accurate rendering of that. Right. So, um, Let's talk a little bit about his um, ideological um, shifts and movements and developments. Sure. Right? So, so uh, you know, because because he went, uh, you know, you, you talked about the Nation of Islam, and and then um, it, it, then with the Black Panthers, well, and he fell out with with Huey Newton over the use of um, uh, over the role of armed insurrection, especially in COINTELPRO. You know, when, when when they figured that happening, you know, the North Korea, Cuba, etc., all that, and then he came back and you know was a Christian and then a Republican. Um, you know, I, is yeah, I, I'd like you to to speak about that and and address whether you know you think it's it's some that reflects his erraticism and instability and mental instability, or you know, is there something actually deeper there? Uh, you know, that is, is, um, you know, makes these moves legitimate. Sure. I mean, this is, I think the main question that people ask when they talk about Cleaver is, you know, he comes back, you know, he's a black Panther, um, you know, looking to overthrow the United States government. He goes abroad and tries to expand that, uh, role by having these connections with these various post-colonial countries. And then, you know, he gets basically chased out of Algeria. He goes to Paris and tries to become a fashion designer and, and really go back to his kind of like earlier roots as being a literary artist. And, you know, after, you know, being on the run for six years, he just, he just is tired and decides I'm going to go back to the United States and try to face the charges for the shootout with the Oakland police. But at this point, um, as you pointed out earlier, he is split from the Panthers. This was partly an ideological split. Cleaver continued to believe that armed insurrection was an absolute necessity um, in the overthrow of the United States government. But um, also the FBI, um, sensing an ideological rift between Huey Newton and Cleaver, had written all sorts of fake letters between the two of them in order to, um, you know, kind of further this and exacerbate this split between the two of them. So by the time Cleaver gets back to the United States in 75, nobody wants to have anything to do with him on the left. You know, they think he is a liability for the fact that he wants to lead this armed insurrection. And by this point, the Panthers themselves have moved into mainstream politics. I mean, you have Bobby Seale and Elaine Brown running for office in Oakland. 
and they don't want to have anything to do with pan, uh, with with Cleaver. And so, at this point, Cleaver decides, um, you know, somewhat. I think, um, you know, flying by the seat of his pants to become a preacher um, and to join the born again movement, which is just starting to get some traction um, in the late seventies. Was it a genuine conversion in your view, or do you think it was like cynical? I mean, I think that for the most part it is a cynical, um, turn, you know, he, he's looking around, um, at his support system, which is all but faded on the left. He's facing hundreds of thousands of dollars of court, um, and lawyer fees for his case that he's fighting against the Oakland police. And the only way that he sees out um, and as a way to make money is to go on this preacher circuit and become um, a born again revolutionary. So, I mean, I do think on at, at the the most basic level, what he's doing is is mercenary. Um, but there are also letters that I found in his private stash. This was a, a body of letters that are being held at Berkeley's Bancroft um, library and they're not to be open till 2025, but I was able to get Kathleen Cleaver, Eldridge's wife, to open them for me. And going through those letters, what is clear uh, is that in his correspondence with various people, he wants to become like his grandfathers. Both of his grandfathers were preachers in the South. And um, he really, some of his only childhood memories that are happy are with his grandfathers. And so in these letters, he talks about how it's very a b- very proud and important tradition in Black America to be a preacher, and so he wants to follow in that tradition. Yeah. So and then I, I think yeah. probably maybe there's some link, you know, with when he joined with the Nation of Islam and and whatnot that that um, that the 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 spiritual and the political in in Black America are are intertwined in ways that 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 is not in mainstream. Um, American life in let's say Euro-American life and perhaps there might be some kind of link there that uh, you know uh, that might make it a little bit uh, less cynical than, than we might think from the outside I, I, I don't know yeah. maybe I'm being a little bit uh, soft on him but, but no, uh, I, I, perhaps there's something there my having gone through you know tens of thousands of documents um What I can tell you about him is that he doesn't uh, stick with any one identity um, through and through 100%. There's always some contradiction there. And so even as he is doing this somewhat mercenary move of becoming a preacher, you know, there's other documentation that suggests that, you know, this was... This this was a, a deeply felt, heartfelt transformation. So right. I do think that there's elements of both. And, you know, I'm, I'm a person who, you know, in, in doing a project like this, you have to have a certain amount of compassion for your subject, even, yeah. even a subject who is as um, ethnically and maybe morally repugnant as Eldridge Cleaver, which I do think he is ethnically and morally repugnant in a lot of ways. Nevertheless, I still think that there's. Do, do you mean ethically or ethnically? Eth- ethically, sorry. <laughs> right. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> yeah. Important correction. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Ethically, um, you know, he's an ethically dubious character. You know, he has all of this like sexual violence in his past. He's abusive toward his wife. Um, he will manipulate and uh, 
and and uh, intimidate even his allies. And so um, there's a lot about Eldridge Cleaver not to like. But um, what I think became clear from my work is that that itself is a, an indictment of racism as well. Not everyone can, you know, experience Jim Crow and turn out like Martin Luther King or even Malcolm X. Some people turn out to be like Eldridge, Eldridge Cleaver, which strikes me as an even deeper indictment of the systems of racism, because this is what it produces is someone like Eldridge. Yeah, I think that's a good point. And, and, and it's, uh, and while it's true, um, you know, within the you know, African, African American community, I, I think it's probably true everywhere that, you know, we, 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 you know, we tend to look and, and it's, I don't know, like it's getting worse now. It's like, we, we look for these perfect people to be role models. And, you know, when you delve into anybody's life, you're going to find, you know, maybe not as bad as some of Eldridge Cleaver's stuff, but you're still going to find some pretty bad stuff. And, uh, yeah, and, and there's a sort of puerile, infantile um, search for for the perfect hero that's never done anything wrong or, or whatever. And then you, you get horrified when you find out that, you know, they may have said something or done something that, that you know, doesn't have this, this image. Uh, yeah. Eldridge Cleaver, of course, takes it, you know, many notches uh, beyond uh, simple human imperfection. But, um, but yeah, but I, I think it's a good point. I think it's a good point. Well, and this is why, you know, I chose him in some ways is because I, I personally, I believe that cancel culture is not a long-term strategy. Um, yeah. And it's precisely for what you say is that everyone's now looking for this kind of pure figure to lead. And, you know, the reason I chose Eldridge Cleaver is because he pushes that logic um, to its absolute breaking point because of yeah. all of the terrible things that he's done, but also because of all of the things that he's done, you know, truly in the spirit of liberating black people from oppression. I mean, that is just yeah. absolutely, both of those two things are absolutely true. And so this is why I'm interested in him is to like point out the ways in which cancel culture as a strategy is very limited. Um, yeah. 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 I, I think that's a, a very, very important point and, and, and relevant because yeah, you, you do talk about that, you know, he, you know, was a man of irreconcilable contradictions, you know? Um, yeah. And, and I think it's, it's very, very important. Um, so, in, and uh, let's just take um, this a little further in terms of the ideology, ideology, just, just another thing that I'm, very interested in about um black republicans black conservatives uh so what what are your reflections on his um move to become a conservative and a republican uh because i i will tell you uh up front that you know i i am very sympathetic to that i i am i i'm sympathetic to the kind of non-aligned movement to the malcolm x thing that republicans and democrats those distinctions really are, um, are are not relevant and and they unnecessarily shackle you. So I I think that uh, but that that's my sort of general uh, position. But what you know for Eldridge Cleaver specifically and his move to the Republicans and, and conservatism and Christian you know and the Mormons of all people, uh, what are your reflections on that? I mean I mean it's two things I'll say about this. I mean one is that. He sought revenge. I mean, he was a person who sought revenge against the left for abandoning him when he came back from um, Paris. You know, he really felt like 
that connection to the Panthers was the most important relationship of his life. And when they turned on him, when he came back, he actively sought them out in electoral politics and, and, and sought to defeat them. Uh Um, you know, the other, the other thing is that he reveled in being an outsider and being hated. Um, you know, he, he reminds me of Trump actually in some ways. I mean, there's, there's of course lots to separate them, but Mm -hmm. the kind of like ego driven, um, desire for attention, no matter whether it's from people you ideologically agree with or people you don't agree with. Um, this was an important facet of Cleaver's character that he wanted to be the center of attention. He wanted to be a leader and whether that was leader of the Panthers or leader of the Mormons, it didn't much matter to him because he was just looking to feed that ego that was so fragile from all of the years of, um, abuse and, um, difficulty that he faced. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that's a, a good insight. Can I actually um, add one more thing to that too? Sure, sure, um, just, you know, the one other thing that's really interesting is that at the very end of his life, maybe two or three years before he died, he was um, smashed in the head with a blunt object while he was trying to do a crack cocaine deal. And because um, he was kind of back on the streets by this point. And after that happened, he came back and decided to go far left again. So he gave up his identification with the right in the last couple years of his life and actually went around um, trying to campaign for Hillary Clinton's um, bid for the presidency back in 1996. So um, he's like incredibly fascinating in the way that he, you know, kind of just moves with the time. So even the Republican turn at the end, he, he ended up turning away from that one more time before the end of his life. Yeah, you know, I, 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 um, uh, I, I, what I would be interested in in looking at that too is is the way he would have justified it because, because I do think because I'm very sympathetic to, to this because people accuse me personally of you know of, of flipping between both and 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 I do in a sense but I don't consider it a flip I I just think those categorizations are just irrelevant to to what. You know the, the political goals that that I personally am, am seeking, for example, and that sometimes you may be in alliance with a, with a Democrat, and sometimes uh, with a Republican, or neither, or sometimes a Marxist, or sometimes an anarchist, or sometimes a white nationalist, or or whatever. And and you know you just don't let these labels bother you. Uh, you know once you are clear on your your goals, you know. Um, uh, I I don't know if, if 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 that was so so much part of his thing, or you know he has the personal story of revenge, which I think is um, you know which I think is very humanizing. I I I don't think that actually belittles him uh, in in many ways. It shows the human side of the story and, and and the betrayal that that he must have felt and 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 whatnot. So yeah, those those things are interesting. But you know, I mean, you point to that failed drug deal and whatnot, and that that was actually the next question I wanted to ask you about, and, and uh, which is, you know, that his precipitous decline. You know, um, uh, um, I mean, not only him. You know, there's a story of of Huey Newton himself, right? Mm-hmm. And then people like Sly Stone, right? I mean. I, I was amazed when I, you know, when I learned, you know, how late, you know, Sly, I, I can't remember, is, is Sly Stone still alive, is he? 
you know, I don't even know. Yeah, I, he he might be. I I need to to double check, but you know, but the fact that you know, cocaine, uh, cocaine in the seventies, and then crack later, um, you know, devastated uh, communities and individuals and leaders, uh, and and people tie this in, you know, uh, to the Cointel uh, Cointel Pro operation. You know, I, you know what what people call conspiracy theories. You know, are, it's it's very much part of. Um, African American discourse. If anybody knows uh, really about you know the the world of, of Afro American thought and whatnot, you know that is that is a a, a big mainstream part of, of mainstream African American thought. And and it and I I don't dismiss that uh, you know out of hand at all. Um, now, what what's your uh, sort of reflections on that? Oh man, the, those last years, I mean, when you get to the end of the book, it's just crushing like what he goes through. And, um, so much of it is related to the drugs. And, um, you know, if you look at my book and other people have talked about this in some, in some respects, but you know, all of those Panthers like Hilliard and Newton, um, Marvin Jackman and others, you know, they were all, hooked on crack cocaine in the eighties and, you know, would go to these crack houses and reminisce about the good old days, um, of being Panthers. And, um, you know, at that point, Cleaver really tried to kind of get back in with, with Newton and all of them, um, to be friends and they wouldn't hear of it because, you know, after the split between the Newton section and the Cleaver section, there was all sorts of, um, infighting between the two, the two sections and people actually got killed. Um, but it's clear that this drug, um, as it flooded places like Oakland and other inner cities, like had a devastating effect on political activism in those areas. You you didn't even need the FBI anymore to sow dissent because this drug just transformed people, um, into, to being, you know, apathetic or, you know, somewhat helpless in the face of the addiction. So, in Cleaver's own case, I mean, it is it is a precipitous decline. You know, he he gets arrested on a couple of different drug charges, and then he gets, like I said earlier, he gets hit on the head, um, and after that, he has brain damage and is not able to walk without the use of a cane. And he's still trying to write, you know, he's still trying to write a sequel to Soul on Ice and some other um, screenplays, and he's just not able to do it. And so, what was left of the end of his life was a single box in Kathleen Cleaver's attic that I went through that had these unfinished manuscripts and things that were, you know, really in some ways incomprehensible because of the drug use. So it really is a, a, a sad ending. Um, but one that's deeply true for that moment. I mean, crack cocaine wreaked all sorts of havoc on American cities and, and black communities in particular. Um, and this is one of the things that I try to show in the book. Yeah, yeah. I mean, a, a real, a real tragedy there. But you, that you uh, referred to, you know, um, Catherine uh, Cleaver and and the archive. Yeah, that that's an important um, aspect of of your book. Oh, and by the way, Sly Stone is still alive. Okay. Um, <laughs> yeah, I just checked it up. But yeah, uh, um, yeah, your your book. Um, you know, you've you've. Uh, accessed declassified files from the French police, yep. from the American embassy, from the FBI, you know, Catherine Cleaver's archive. Um, so, you know, you've, you've 
you know, gone through a lot of documents that probably nobody else has yeah. uh, done. And, you know, so, so that, that's important. And, and what are, you know, what are some of the insights you gained from that archival research that, uh, you know, yeah, maybe changes the stories or, or deepens the story for us? I mean, it's a great question. And um, I was really lucky because I was able to win a fellowship from the Levon, Leon Levy Institute, which is at CUNY. And it gave me a whole year to travel and go to these different archives. And so, like I said earlier, I went to the Ar- Arkansas Historical Society and was able to uncover the story of his family roots. Um, right. I went to the National Archive in Washington, D.C. and was able to get a hand uh, a hold of the um, the consulate, the American consulate's surveillance of Cleaver while he was in Algeria. As you right. say, it went to, to France. Um, what was interesting about France is there was two archives there. There was the special police archives in Paris, and then there was the diplomatic archives in um, Nantes, not um, France. Mm-hmm. And um, both of those allowed me to see the degree to which Cleaver had been under surveillance, not only by the Americans, but by the, the French while he was in Algeria, because it's a former French colony, and then the yeah. Algerians themselves. So you had three distinct countries doing these, um, keeping tabs on him and Kathleen um, the entire time they were, um, they were abroad. Um, but the, the most, as you say, the most important archive that I was able to look at was Kathleen Cleaver's. Uh, while I was in Algeria, I was able to find um, Ahmad um, Cleaver's email. Ahmad is uh, Eldridge's son, mm-hmm. and he was living in Saudi Arabia at the time. Right. And so because Americans can't go to Saudi Arabia without a, a visa, which are really hard to get, we met in Casablanca. And just spent a week together with me interviewing him. And at the end of that week, he called Kathleen, who lives in Atlanta, and said, hey, I'm, I'm here with this, this scholar. You know, He's written about um, Eldridge, and, and he'd like to come and meet you. So she invited me to her house. And I ended up staying there um, in her attic for, for a number of weeks for over the course of two summers, going over you know, 20, 30 boxes of materials and in these boxes i mean just stuff you couldn't believe like um handwritten um letters between cleaver and various lovers that he had that kathleen had saved um unpublished novels that he never got around to publishing about his prison time um fbi files that really detailed all of the surveillance that was going on and all of the ways they were trying to sabotage the black panthers so, you know, just um, tens of thousands of pages of material, like you said, that no one's ever seen before. And um, as soon as I was done with the Kathleen Cleaver archive, she donated it to Emory University, and it will now be in processing for the next couple of years. So no one's going to be able to look at these documents for at least a number of years. And so I was really fortunate to get access to all of this stuff to write this book. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I, I understand the feeling. I, I had a, a, a similar kind of experience, not as extensive as yours, but yeah, um, in, in being able to access, uh, you know, archives for research that I've done as well. Yeah, that, that's, a, that's incredible. I mean, do you, do you think there's, a, 
there's a lot of of stuff still that needs to be researched about his life uh, from those from those archives. I, you know, I don't think so. I mean, there there yeah. may be. There's there's always you know people better and and hungrier than yourself that get out there yeah. and find things. So that's always possible. But I went through every single page of the 35 boxes that were at Berkeley. Um, a number of boxes at Texas A&M, the archives that were at um, the National Archive and in Arkansas, no one even knew about. Like I, I mm-hmm. uncovered those um, by doing some pretty significant legwork. So, and same with the, the archives in Paris and in France. So, um, you know, someone might come along and find more stuff, but I, I highly doubt it. And, and that's that, yeah. that's not me bragging. That's just me expressing that I spent five years in these archives and it was um, yeah. quite extensive. Yeah, that's right. Um, yeah, you know, and, and, and you did point out that, you know, when he died in 1998, um, you know, he was kind of forgotten in a lot of ways, you know. And there, there's, a, there's a couple of things that I'd like you to comment on that. Just, I mean, one is just, you know, the nature of the trajectory of, you know, Somebody could be famous and notorious and, you know, uh, at a certain phase in history and, and everywhere on newspapers and then totally forgotten. Uh, but then I, I don't know if there's, there's also an aspect, too, about African-American history, um, because a lot of it is not in books. A lot of it is in the oral tradition. Sometimes you find it in music and stuff like that. Like, I mean, you would know this uh, from Iceberg Slim or whatever, yeah. right? Like, so, or people like Dolomite, right? Like, I, like, for me, like, I, I didn't know Dolomite until I heard like Snoop Doggy Dogs sing a, you know, ref, drop a reference to him. I say, oh, well, who's Dolomite? And then, oh, and then he was a film and, and blah, blah. And thankfully for YouTube, you can get, you can kind of do some digging. But, you know, but, but in the Afro-American world, I mean, they have all these figures, like a parallel history, a parallel group of heroes and a parallel, um, you know, oral, oral tradition where they keep these things alive and whatnot. But, um, but yeah, but Eldridge Cleaver, I don't know, he, he kind of, you know, he had, did he fall through that kind of crack? And, and, um, and I suppose is, is your book kind of, uh, remedying this? Yeah. You know what I would call it, um, is a shadow cannon. This is what I call it in my book on Iceberg Slim is that there is a, a body of work out there that is exists and influential and popular, but maybe not at the university level, maybe not in like trade publishing, maybe not on the pages of the New York times. And so, um, I think Cleaver, you know, there's a kind of perfect storm of things that contribute to him falling through the cracks. I mean, one is that he's this revolutionary thinker that is straight up calling for the overthrow of the United States government. Um, not a popular point of view with like mainstream, um, kind of African-American thinkers or, you know, like white thinkers for that matter. Mm -hmm. Um, then you have the actual abuse of women, um, and the rape issue, which like really, you know, for a lot of people, you know, it's a non-starter because of that. That's right. Um, they don't, they don't want to talk about them at all. Um, and then there's this like turn to the right at the end of his life, which makes, which makes him look like, um, someone who's betraying the cause of like the radical left. So, you know, there's, there's a lot of things against Cleaver. Um, and you know, one of the things that I'm trying to do is to say, all right, you may not like this stuff. Um, you may not like a lot of this stuff, but you need to at least understand it. 
um, before you cast judgment. And so what I've tried to do with the book is to really contextualize these various choices that he made um, and see it, uh, uh, you know, see him as in some ways like a logical outcome of history. Um, this is not an aberration. This is absolutely um, the the clear product um, of these various kinds of like racial forces and then failed attempts at liberation. And so we'll see. We'll see what what people make of this book, but I'm really hoping that people will read it um, and gain some broader understanding. Good. Yeah. You know, there's one question I I wanted to um, ask that I, I, we talked around, but I'd like you to, to hit it directly, um, which is, was he, do you think he was a traitor when he came back that, uh, that he sold out because, um, uh, you know, he was going to be arrested. And, and so it gave him that, um, that more lenient sentence and, and, and that accounts for his turn or, or not. Yeah. I mean, I'll actually come back to something that you said at the beginning, you know, which is like, what do you do with the fact that, you know, you're a white man who's talking about this historic black figure? And this is actually one of the, the moments where I'll say, as a white man, I don't feel comfortable calling yeah. him a traitor. Um, yeah. Because who the hell am I to make that judgment? Even though I am his biographer, um, I think it's like, like very um, tricky to, to come down in that kind of judgment um, of him. Yeah. The other thing I'll say too is just like I see Eldridge Cleaver as a guy who would do anything to survive, and yeah. you know, given the circumstances of, of his life, um, some of those things that he had to do were, you know, very questionable um, and very dubious. But again, you know, when you're faced with survival, like what are you willing to do to survive? And Cleaver was willing to do all sorts of things that people consider. Um, problematic at the least and maybe even like unforgivable at the worst. Um, but I guess I don't see it in those terms. I guess Mm -hmm. I see that like, this is what, this is what a racist society has wrought and Eldridge Cleaver happened because of that racist society. And that's the message that I I guess I want to get across. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Well, because I usually, uh, well, you may have preempted the question because usually I, I like to end and close off with saying, you know, what is a message you'd like to leave your readers with? So is, is, is that it? Yeah. I mean, I guess one last thing I'll say, and you, you mentioned this earlier, that um, Cleaver's this like mess of contradiction. And mm-hmm. um, I think that that's what makes him compelling and interesting. Um, it also makes him troubling as a figure. And what I hope readers will get out of this is an experience where they're both, um, captivated by Cleaver's story, um, but also disturbed by his behavior and to see that as part of a larger context, um, of American race relations that we still need to work on, that we still need to fix. All right. Great, great. Uh, I mean, I know, you know, this is a, a major piece of work and it's just been published, but just in case, uh, are there any other projects that you're working on that you want our audience to know about? Uh, or, you know, or do you have a website or something where they can find uh, your other work? Because, you know, this is not your first and you, you've done some other interesting stuff as well. Absolutely. So um, I do have a website and it's just my name, justingifford.com. So Justin and then G-I-F-F-O-R-D.com. 
And I have all of my, um, my articles and various things that I've written over the last 15 years up there for people to look at. Um, much of it's on Iceberg Slim because that's where I got my start, but there's also some stuff on Cleaver. And um, I'm actually working on a new book right now on the science fiction writer Octavia Butler, um, who is the mm-hmm. first black woman to become a science fiction writer. Um, I'm writing her biography right now um, and looking forward to getting into the Huntington, um, which is a which is an archive down in Pasadena, California, where they have 360 boxes of her work. So that'll be the next challenge. All right. Okay. Well, that sounds uh, that sounds really good, and I wish you all the best with that too. Oh, thanks well, so much, and, and thanks for this. This has been absolutely a joy. Well, yeah, it it, it has been, and uh, so I want to thank you uh, for this interview because it has been informative and enjoyable. Great. Thanks again. So once again, the book is Revolution or Death: The Life of Eldridge Cleaver, and we've been speaking to the author Justin Gifford. Thanks also to you, our listeners. Make sure you sign up for our notifications so you don't miss any new interviews on this channel in future. I look forward to seeing you on the next episode.